If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from a few amazing fundraisers about what they value most as members of Tammy Zonker's Fundraising Transformers community. I have had the honor of learning and growing from Tammy. She has really helped us understand how to communicate better with our donors, how to make sure that our mission is at the front line of their decision making. And she has just been an absolute joy to learn from. That's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, talking about how being a growth member is helping her communicate better with her donors. When you join Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member, you get live training and coaching with Tammy twice each month. You can get your burning questions answered during her live Ask Me Anything sessions. You get to join in Tammy's live weekly hot topic discussions. You can engage with other fundraising pros like you in her private and safe online community. And you get 24-7 access to her growing library of on-demand fundraising training videos and tools. Here's Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how being a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community is helping her grow her capacity, her skills, and her confidence as a fundraiser. It's been so helpful for me to grow my capacity and my skills. I feel more confident uh, knowing that I have Tammy and the Fundraising Transformers group for support. I've reached out to Tammy and the group on several occasions, whether it be just some wording for an email to say, hey, can somebody give me just a little bit of feedback on this? I'd love your thoughts before I send this out for an initiative. We'll hear more later in the show about why Jenna values having access to Tammy's members-only, on-demand training library. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser podcast, we are excited to welcome Matt Morse with Creative Partnerships Australia. Matt is a strategic and innovative leader. While he began his career raising funds for performing arts, his passion for all art forms of art and culture is deep. Performing arts, museums and galleries, visual arts, cross-art forms, festivals, literary and humanistic art expressions, media and communications. And now through the work of Creative Partnerships Australia, He and his brilliant team are equipping and empowering Australian arts and culture organizations to grow, thrive, and become more sustainable. I came to know Matt during the COVID-19 shutdown. I was invited to work with Creative Partnerships to deliver two 90-minute virtual trainings through their Knowledge Series in 2021. And if you haven't heard yet, I'm super excited to partner again this May. I'll be traveling to Australia in about two weeks 
to lead a one-day masterclass on the art of donor influence in five capital cities, May 10th through the 20th. We'll be in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, and Brisbane. We'll include links to learn more or to register in the show notes. So without further delay, Matt, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tammy. Thanks for having me. I must say, it is nearly May. You'll be in Australia in just a few weeks' time. So exciting. It is exciting. It is like a trip of a lifetime. Can I ask you, what is the number one thing that you're looking forward to when you do come to Australia? There's something that you'd like to experience? You know... I have read so much about Australia. Of course, you know, we've seen Australia in so many films. I just want to steep myself in the culture. Everything from the arts and cultural organizations, right, to experience um, those things, but also just to walk, to sit in some coffee shops, you know, to, to see the Great Barrier Reef, to get out in nature and hike a little bit. So going to try and live it up big in just a few days. <laughs> a few days, yes. Well, I can say we can we can give you all of that. The culture here in, especially here where I record from today in Melbourne, you know, the coffee scene and the laneways, you can just get immersed just walking down the streets of Melbourne. It's, you can lose hours and hours. So I'm sure you'll have a great time and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. It really has been almost two years, right? Since we've been doing virtual at least 18 months. I think I know your living room very well and you know my kitchen very well. (laughs) This is true. Welcome to my living room. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm curious. I'm always curious to learn how people get into their careers and how that career journey unfolds. Have the arts and culture always been a passion for you? and, And how did you get into the sector? Really interesting story, Tammy. Arts and culture has been a huge part of my DNA since I was a young person. But funnily enough, I grew up in a family that was all about sport. You know, in Australia, sport is a thing that we all love to do and we all have to participate in. You know, during winter, I was made to play football. During summer, play cricket and then basketball all year round with my other brothers. But I must be honest, I was the black sheep. I was absolutely terrible at sports. You know, I'm a very short person, always being thrown around and taken advantage of. The funny thing is that I was always winning the best team player award. My brothers would get first best and fairest, and I would get the best team player. <laughs> the funny thing is sport introduced me to the arts. My basketball coach um, was also the dance teacher at the local high school, and she introduced me to dance. Um, she taught me technique. Uh, she taught me how to tell narrative and how to be a really good choreographer. She was the person that picked me up and took me to dance classes because my parents were never around. So she was really instrumental in me finding my feet in the arts, especially dance. I think that, yeah, I wouldn't be here without that kind of support. We often talk about teachers creating strong relationships with their students. This was a really, really unique situation for me. And then once I finished high school, I went off to university and I studied dance. Um, I became a choreographer. I injured myself. So at a very early age, I had to stop. I couldn't be a dancer. My body was telling me no. But also the flip side to that was I was becoming more increasingly aware that 
there's so few jobs to be a dancer or a choreographer that is actually paid in Australia. And so I thought, well, I love the arts. I love dance. I love watching people perform. Well, what can I do? How can I become a part of the enabler? Like, let's become an arts administrator. Let me be the support to let the great things happen. That's where I've ended up today. And, you know, those kind of values sit in everything that I do. And when that comes to supporting arts organisations through creative partnerships or when I was back in the fundraising role, storytelling, listening, really, really important things to me. I love that story. I had no idea. Another funny story is the day that I gave up sport to focus on dancing. And that teacher came to my house to talk to my mum. My mum cried because I was focusing on something different than sport. She really had to get her head around that this was the one thing that I was really passionate about and that I love doing. And again, back to that teacher, I don't think I could have ever had that conversation with my parents. You know, they're extremely proud of what I do and what I've achieved. I was different to my other siblings and that's okay. I love that. You know, and I think it's so true when we look at the performing arts or really any expression of art, there is the person who, or group of people who are front and center, center stage, so to speak. But for every person who's center stage, there are loads of people behind the scenes, whether they're sound and lights or curators or, again, the administrators. And we certainly know fundraisers, right? That's right. Ticket sales rarely um, cover operating costs completely, rarely. Well, they probably make up in Australia approximately 40%. And we know that you know, artists need a support. They need the mechanisms in place that enable them to go off and be creative and explore and um, you know, have amazing processes. And I think the pandemic has really shown outside of the art sector what it takes something on, may that be a gallery show or a performance that we do. We've got the technical staff, we've got the box office staff, we've got the fundraising staff, we've got our boards. All of these people were displaced because of the COVID pandemic. So it wasn't just Matt Morse, the artist, losing his gig. It was the entire community. But fundraising, yeah, sometimes the really silent, quiet achievers that enable so much to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, it's beautiful. So what is the best part of working in the arts and culture space? And then what is like the flip side of that? What's the worst part or the most challenging part? Great question. I think for me, the best part is watching a creative process. So, you know, when a, say when a dancer comes up with an initial concept, this is what I'm going to create this work about. And they spend four or five weeks in the studio with their dancers creating this vision, and then, they, and then they stop for a little while. They'll take a break and come back three or four months later, and you kind of see that evolution of the idea and, and the choreography, and then that kind of leads into, you know, that kind of performance stage. But watching that process, I find that that's more important to me than sometimes the final product. I really love enabling and watching artists have that time and space to do that. But there's, other, there's one other thing that... I do love, and this is going to sound probably a little bit wonky to your listeners. I love listening to audiences after they've seen a show. So if you're in a foyer after a gallery opening or 
after watching a piece of theatre, listening to how people respond to what they've just seen. You know, some people love it, some people were challenged by it. And, and this is the whole great thing about the arts is that it's so highly subjective. And I think that listening into that stuff, it reminds you how great it is what we do in this sector. And so, yeah, sometimes it's not like a, I am a peeping Tom. <laughs> I just love hearing other people's responses to what they've just seen. Yes. You know, I've What's witnessed... the worst part? Oh, you know, before you go on, I have something you brought to mind. I'm visualizing some performances I've gone to. And I notice that when people, couples, families, when they're walking in, they're quiet. They may not be talking to one another. Perhaps they've picked up the program and they're starting to look at it. They're kind of rushing to their seat. But when they leave, they're talking to one another. To your point, right? They're close. They're laughing or they're in a kind of a debate about a certain scene or what that meant. But it does. It brings people together. You're so right. As soon as the lights go up, the first thing that people do is they turn to each other and they start having a conversation about what they've just been a part of. And then that escalates as they, as they leave. And sometimes they'll go off and have dinner or have a, a drink afterwards. And, and, you know, that kind of conversation keeps going. And most often they're not. They're really positive discussions. They're not like what we, what we see in Twitter and, you know, the social media, you know, universe where everyone just jumps to the negative. You know, this is a really safe place where people can constructively talk about what they've just been a part of. Thinking about the negative or I think you said the worst part. I'm going to throw that back to fundraising. And I, the worst part is when people keep telling me that fundraising is too hard. I can't do it now. It's too hard. And then alongside with that, they'll throw in, but why can't you just introduce me to a donor that will give me support? It blows my mind that people still think that there's people working in fundraising that hold the book of all the relationships and that they are able to say, oh, Tammy, Tammy loves to support literature. So if anyone comes to me and wants to talk about literature, I'll just tell them, I'll introduce them to Tammy. Of course, Tammy's just going to write a check. We know that is not the case. I don't know how many times, I must sound like a absolute broken record that I keep having to say this, that these conversations still keep happening. And, you know, that's really disappointing. I agree. I think it's the same in the States. There's this apprehension or this fantasy that, you know, the big philanthropist du jour, in our case right now, it's Mackenzie Scott and Dan Jewett. It, before that, it was Oprah. <laughs> Right? There's going to be someone who's going to come magically sweep in and solve all your problems with a check. And what we know as career fundraisers, people who have been doing this for 10, 20 plus years, is that money follows passion and need. Absolutely. Right? How do we tell the story? How do we engage them? How do we tell the story of need and what's possible with additional impact? And that's what we're going to be talking about in two weeks when I come to Australia. That's right. And the other thing, Tammy, is practice makes perfect. You know, you need to start learning how to fundraise. You've got to apply the time. You've got to engage in the conversations about how does fundraising work in your circumstance. You, you need to be aware. This is a huge part of 
the revenue source to enable us to do what we need to do. And so you can't simply ignore something because you think it's too hard. I thought, I thought riding a scooter was going to be really, really hard. <laughs> and I got on, had a go, fell off, got back on, didn't injure myself. But, you know, I'm more confident now. Um, I can go at greater speed, I'm more aware of the circumstances around me. Just jump in there and learn. Exactly. It will be easy for you in the long run. Absolutely. Everything gets easier with practice. So, Matt, in preparation for my trip to Australia, I've been doing a bit of research, as you might imagine. And in addition to the obvious, right, the beauty that the arts bring to us, the richness of life, the joy, the passion that it can evoke, um, and the benefits to overall well-being by participating in the arts, enjoying the arts, arts and culture is really serious business in Australia. So I was shocked by some of the numbers. So the creative and cultural industries employ 645,000 Australians. The creative art nonprofit space alone employs nearly 200,000 people, which is four times the number employed by the coal mining industry, and it's equal to the number employed in the finance sector. I mean, that was really mind-blowing to me. And of course, before the pandemic, when things... (laughs) The arts and culture sector was doing well. Creative industry jobs were increasing at twice the rate of the rest of the Australian economy. So it is big business. But let's talk about how the pandemic has affected arts and culture. I mean, obviously, Australia experienced a massive shutdown in response to COVID-19, as did the rest of the world as well. But your situation was a little bit different. (laughs) So focusing on Melbourne, where you are, uh, a city of 5 million people, when your stay-at-home order ended uh, in October 15th of last year, you had experienced six lockdowns, totaling 262 days since the pandemic began. So that's more lockdown than any other city in the entire world, and you lived it. So how did, how was that? And how did that shutdown affect the Australian arts and culture organizations? Well, firstly, thanks for the reminder, 262 (laughs) days. I think personally for myself, it was really, really hard. I I felt um, that every time we thought we were getting into a positive space, that we were moving through things, things took a lot longer for us to get back on track or we'd go back into another lockdown and you'd have great days or you'd have great weeks thinking that we're on top of things and I'm managing home life really well, work life's going very well, and then you'd have days where everything just felt like too much. I might take a step back and say just prior to COVID, the summer prior to, to the March, so that's December, January, February, Australia had some of the worst bushfires that we have ever seen where the amount of lives lost, homes lost, animals, the destruction was epic. And then thinking we've just put out these fires and people are rebuilding and then we get hit with this pandemic and all of a sudden everything shut down. There were really, really uncertain times and really dark times. I think as we went into it, Melbourne went into their second lockdown, which was the longest, overnight everybody lost gigs their employment, not just thinking about 
the next one or two weeks, we, we're talking about six to 12 months. Um, promoters were, were not making any commitments. We we're all told to just pack up and go home. All of our venues closed. We didn't think about the term pivot yet. It was very much about what is our job security? Will I have a job? What does this pandemic really mean? And will, will my employer be able to keep me if, I, if I'm actually employed in an arts organisation? Or, or how will the government support me? And then on top of that, family. <laughs> you think about, you know, the people that live with you or your extended family and, and what they're going through um, was extremely different, difficult. But as we tapped on before, Tammy, this didn't just affect the artists. It affected management, trades, front of house, education. Everybody was told, no, we can't have this. We can't do this. And so we had to think about pivoting. But before I go to the pivoting, I want to talk about the next level. So it's all good and well that we have lockdowns when we're allowed to open back up. You know, in, in Melbourne, we had a really staggered approach to opening back up even though creatives could get back in a studio or um, theatre companies could start rehearsing, the reality of opening a theatre and affording to put on a, a, a theatre production, it wasn't cost-effective. We had one person for every four square metres or capped at 25% capacity and then 50% capacity. And then sometimes it would get to 50 and then we'd go back down again. <laughs> so, you know, being in management, it, you often question, why are we doing this? Why don't we just wait? Let's just wait till it's over. But what we learned is this isn't going away. This, this, is, this is here. And so we had to pivot. And, you know, there's some amazing pivots that came out of it. One of the great things is on social media, watching dancers from the Australian ballet in their tiny one-bedroom apartments taking class. Firstly, I'd never imagined that I'd be in the living room a dancer for the Australian Ballet. And in my mind, I thought they lived in grand houses, <laughs> little one-bedroom apartments. You know, another great thing was from the technicians that worked on the road with the concerts and the big festivals, they pivoted and said, well, we've got a really great skill set. And there's a gap in the market. Everybody's needing workstations from home. So let's use our skills and make plywood laptop holders or desks and sell them to the community. That business went crazy. Like they ended up employing more staff to meet the need. And I felt that this is this was another great community moment where people went, well actually we're not going to buy the big multinational desk from you know the stationary people. We're going to support local business and we're going to support the employment of these these people during this really challenging time. Nice. Well, probably one of the most amazing things for me was overnight this thing called the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall started. And this was based off two artists that thought, okay, how do we get music out to the regions? How do we, how do we get music out there? And they created this digital music hall, a subscription-based, where people could buy tickets online and see their favourite performers do perform their favourite works. It was a means in that time for people to stay engaged with, you know, their love. And it was also a great distraction. And the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall is no longer the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall. It's now the Australian Digital Concert Hall. It's been so successful and it continues to be successful as we move out of 
lockdowns because people anywhere can engage with it. You know, people that, you know, Australia is a very vast country. People that live in regional Australia, they can't often come to Melbourne and sit in the Melbourne Recital Centre. But with this new model, they're able to engage at their home in their own time. That's and really brilliant. And they supported that. And they supported that philanthropically. So there was some investment by government in the initial stages, but the bulk of it has come through philanthropic giving and revenue through ticket sales. As dark as it is, there was some amazing creativity. What's next? It's a little bit hard because we've lost two years of seeing works being presented. So who knows? But, you know, I'm loving being back inside venues. I'm loving being inside theatres. And I just want to continue to support and see as much as I can. Yeah, I think it's, it's so good. I mean, it's amazing that venues have opened back up. People are so hungry to get out and to, you know, to be social. And, but I think that this and strategy, you know, where we, can, we take the best of what we created during the pandemic, whether it's digital access, subscription access, in addition to the in-person, I think there's real opportunity there, not just for revenue and for fundraising, you know, to really make a case about when we talk about taking the arts to the masses. Um, but I think that people need that. You know, I think that the pandemic could be so isolating. And we know, at least here in the U.S., the youth suicide rates spiked because of that isolation. And, and you're nodding. So I'm, did, did that happen in Australia as well? Yeah. And so... For people yeah, to have it, access to that kind of creative, to soothe their souls, to create a sense of belonging, you know, to bring some joy. I mean, it literally makes a case for the quality of life and sometimes life and death. That's right. And, 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 and thinking about doing things together, like as simple as going to a dance class and seeing your friends for an hour and, you know, doing, the, you know, the latest, you know, hip-hop jazz routines, you know, what that does for your endorphins and also your ability to, you know, socialise and, and make friends. I mean, it's a very different proposition when you're doing it facing your television at home with a dance teacher and your siblings running around you. <laughs> it's, very, it's still very isolating, especially when this is now happening for 40-odd weeks whilst you can't be at school. And you can't do things. Very difficult time. Mm. I don't think we're through it yet. And I Im envisage that the arts and cultural sector will be very different. I think we're okay now um, in some ways, but there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of tiredness. There's a lot of people thinking, well, I need a break now. I need to step away. And that, you know, all of that is perfectly fine. And I think that what anybody in the leadership role in arts is that we've got to provide that space and we've got to provide that support. We want people to come back bigger or better or healthier and be able to connect again and you know, get that life back and realise the motivation why they came to this sector in the first place rather than it being too hard and exhausting. Yes. You know, what's interesting, you know, we've, you and I have talked, we both have um, read about the Great Resignation. 
We both have experienced it uh, in the nonprofit sector. But what's really interesting is that, yes, in the nonprofit sector, so many performers, but also so many of the administrative, the fundraising, um, the, you know, the behind the scenes people are experiencing that fatigue, that burnout, and they're looking for something else. Many of them in the U.S. are leaving the sector altogether. And that's concerning and it's sad. But at the same time, if we look at the for-profit sector, the business sector, they, those employees, have gone through their own trauma with the stop and start, pandemic, shutdown, open, shutdown, as you were describing. And they, too, are feeling a sense of maybe resignation with, and dissatisfaction and fatigue with their for-profit jobs. Perhaps we in the nonprofit sector could attract them. We are the, the brokers of hopes and dreams in the nonprofit sector. And that, I think, has some appeal. Definitely. I think, and increasingly, when people had time during these lockdowns, they really reflected on what is the meaning and the purpose of what they're doing. And are they happy working in the for-profit sector, working for the bigger engine and not being purposeful? And so people are thinking about, well, I've enjoyed time with my family. My purpose is different. And I'd like to try and retain as much of this as, as I can. And an important part of that is my career. We spend eight to 10 hours every day, well, five days a week in this space. I want to be doing something that's meaningful to me and something that I'm incredibly passionate about. So I, I believe that there is a great opportunity there. Fingers crossed. It'd be nice to get some, some more skills in you know, the arts and cultural sector. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Matt, I've read that the Australian government invested $11.5 billion in arts and culture in 2019 and 20, including four and a quarter billion dollars in COVID relief. And that's incredible. It really shows how much uh, arts and culture means to the Australian culture, that your government would invest those kinds of dollars. I mean, I can tell you in the U.S., the, we've been pulling the arts out of public schools for decades now. So that's really heartening to see that kind of investment. Tell us about the funding mix for arts and culture organizations in Australia. You mentioned that the box office or ticket sales is about 40% on average. Probably um, most organizations are somewhere in there. How much of it then is government funding versus corporate or individual private funding? And has that changed? Are you beginning to see it change um, as we emerge from the more intense phase of the pandemic? Really, really big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and a really interesting question, actually, Tammy, because it differs across size of the organization, their activity, where, where they're situated and what they do. We kind of talk about our sector in four sizes. We've got the small to medium size, which are organisations that kind of operate under $250,000 a year in revenue. And then we've got our large size organisations, which operate between $250,000 and a million dollars a year in turnover. And then we have our extra large organisations, which 
you know, most likely look like your collecting institutions or your major performing arts companies, which operate between, you know, $1 million and $50 million per year. And so sometimes when we slice and dice where the revenue comes from, it differs by size. I'll kind of focus on the large organisations today because I think that's a, a, quite a decent sample here. Um, yeah, as I said, prior to the pandemic, 40% was revenue. So think about that completely wiped straight away. That's not coming in because people can't come and see what you do. Government revenue prior to the pandemic sat around 27%. Now, this, is, this differs by organisation. Some organisations get more from government. Some of them are less reliant on government funding, depending on how they, they've, they've set up their business. Um, and private sector support sits around, you know, equally important at around 25% of the revenue. Um, and, and during the pandemic, obviously, government grants grew. Um, the Australian government introduced JobKeeper, which enabled payments to be made to the employer to keep their staff on the payroll during the pandemic. So there's an increase of government support there. And then there was operational grants to obviously keep some initiatives going or if some organisations had a greater level of financial difficulty to weather the storm of the pandemic. What we didn't want to see is some of our largest and most long-standing organisations all over because of the pandemic. But private sector support, I think, was really interesting. Um, at the start of the pandemic, we, we heard a lot of stories about companies going back out to their subscription buyers and saying, would you consider donating the value of your subscription back to the company whilst we go through this terrible time, rather than us providing you with a reading? And this was really popular. People were people understood what was going on with the, their beloved company and they wanted to support it whilst they could right here, right now, without actually having to do much. They didn't have to open their wallet. They didn't have to get their credit card out. It was a simple gesture of saying, yes, you can transfer that. I want you to continue to operate. That's incredible. Um, People are amazing. Yeah, it's just, well, that's right. And it'd be interesting to see when we do get data reflecting back on the second year of the pandemic is did that trend continue or did people kind of feel like, well, that's enough or did the organisations not do enough to keep those people that have made that what they may feel is a really quite a significant gift to the organisation because their relationship today is only being I'm a supporter by a subscription. But maybe they've decided, no, that's not the case moving forward. But time will tell and we'll have that data hopefully towards the end of this year. You know, there's organisations in the philanthropy space that had well-oiled fundraising strategies and relationships with their supporters did so much better than those that were not ready. There was a lot of organisations that panicked and went, we need to find our supporters and we need to tell them they're having a really tough time and we need them to give us some money. Well, asking for money at the start of the pandemic it was a very crowded space. Arts and culture was not the only <laughs> sector that was saying, we need your support. So you, you have a very limited chance of people saying, we value you so much that I'm going to be able to financially support you during this time if I've actually got the capacity. Whereas those organisations where philanthropists are known by name, they're part of the family, they're part of the fabric, they were more than willing to step up either 
redirect their annual gifts to untied or extend a gift, you know, increase it by 10, 20 or 50%, regardless of what they thought they could or should be doing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, All goes back so to relationships, really, right? Hands down. Um, and I think that anybody working in the arts and culture, that's probably one of the biggest things they've learned from the pandemic is relationships. And I hope that it's not something that patters away over the five years post the pandemic. I hope that we we continue to strengthen these relationships and build on them and understanding that it's not just the fundraiser that holds the relationships. You know, it's it's the artistic director. It, it is box office people, box office people knowing who Tammy is when she steps inside the gallery. It's the artist, you know, artists. I must, I'm not going to say they didn't shock me, but I was pleasantly surprised how willing they were to roll up their sleeves to contact supporters that they knew that who they that they liked what they did and spend 30 minutes talking to them on the telephone. They didn't feel as though this was a step too far. I feel that's fantastic. I would say 10 to 15 years ago in Australia, artists were off limits. Artists weren't allowed near philanthropists or business partners. And if so, it was very transactional. It's mm. kind of like, welcome to the rehearsal room for five minutes, and now we need to move on. So there's that kind of that, that shift. And God, that shift has happened because, you know, artists value their audiences, which their audiences are their biggest supporters. They're their lovers. So then being a part of this during the pandemic, I think, hopefully we'll have a really significant change in this space. Yeah. So it good. won't be the fundraiser saying, hey, Tammy, can we please have the artists on Friday for two hours because we've got some, some lovely supporters dropping by? Oh, I don't know, Tammy. It'd be like, of course. They would, the artists would love to see Matt and Mike this Friday. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh, that's a game changer. Absolute game changer in the world of philanthropy, for sure. I mean, because then our supporters feel like family. It's these artists aren't these untouchables on stage, but they are, you can actually build that relationship, that affinity, and what it says to the donor, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I just love it because it says to the donor, you are more than a gift. You are part of this family, right? You, you have access. So good. That's right. And, and you know, it's unique access. And I think one of the things that may have contributed to this, this shift is social media. You know, Instagram, every, every artist has a profile and, and they talk about what they do and what they love about what they're doing in their personal time and their professional time. And that's another glimpse for supporters to have a level of engagement with um, an artist in their personal space. But then that also enables them up to want to get to know that person further or understand what they do even to greater lengths. Mm. It's interesting. It is. It is. It is. We're back with growth member Jenna Zapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee talking about how having 24-7 access to Tammy Zonker's on-demand training library is helping her become a better fundraiser. 
Since joining the Fundraising Transformers group, I have had the opportunity to go back and re-watch a host of trainings on such a wide variety of topics from how to work with my team members inside my organization to how to get my board excited and passionate about fundraising and topics like how to reach out to a donor and how to get a meeting with a donor. Here's Stevie Shoemate from Chapters Health Foundation in Tampa, sharing that as a growth member in Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community, you're never alone. How members of the community support one another by sharing resources and lessons learned to help solve tough fundraising problems. You oftentimes learn from other people across the entire country, which is really nice because it helps you understand that you're not alone in your uh, fundraising challenges. It, um, I was just sharing with someone the other day that it really helped me feel like I wasn't the only one experiencing these challenges, knowing that someone from New York or New Hampshire or Texas, um, people all over the U.S. with varying communities and different fundraising strategies, we're all in this together. At the end of the show, we'll hear why members enjoy learning from Tammy and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. To learn more about the Fundraising Transformers community, visit fundraisingtransformed.com forward slash growth. So you talked about how the private sector is about 25% of the revenue for these larger organizations. But when you talk about access to the artists and these relationships, these pockets of really strong relationships, it really does seem like there's a strong case for support for growing private sector contributions from individuals and individuals who run corporations and businesses. So I saw that the Australia Council for the Arts published some findings in a study that says um, 84% of Australians recognize the impact of arts and creativity in their community. So there is inherent like recognition of that value. 63% recognize the importance of arts and culture on childhood development. Again, really powerful. 56% recognize the impact arts and culture have on overall well-being and happiness. So with that level of appreciation and recognition of arts and, and culture, what seems to be the biggest challenge to inspiring more generous giving from the private sector? How can we move the needle from 25% to 50 or 60 or 75 is the million dollar, well, the multi-million dollar question. I think two things. I think going to back to what I was just saying, I feel as though arts organisations need to take that whole of organisation approach to relationships and fundraising and their supporters. And uh, I feel that that's really important that, you know, the different arms and legs of an organisation all understand the fundamental value of what you do and how you talk and reach out to people that engage with what you do. And I think that if we can have more organisations operating like this, then I think we'll have better success. And I think the other one is knowing that we need to invest in relationships. That's also identifying relationships, but then cultivating those relationships and, and then taking them to the next level but also acknowledging that this takes time. 
you know, this is a, a big area for me in regards to, you know, I've got boards and general managers saying, we're going to put a fundraiser on this year, Matt. And our expectation is that in two years' time, they'll be bringing in $250,000. I'm like, okay, well, where, 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 did, where, where did you get to $250,000? Like, well, I think that this company down the road, that's what I've heard that their fundraising target is, and that's what they're achieving. I'm like, yes, well, that company's been fundraising for 10 years, and they've also got a whole of organization approach. They've got a strategy. They know who their audience is. <laughs> They know who their believers and their lovers are. Yes. So it's about taking the time to understand that fundraising is a long-term journey, especially if you want to grow it and get more. Because we know that there's a multiplier effect sometimes when, you know, one amazing philanthropist tells their friends about the great relationship that they've got with Tammy Zonka's dance company. And the relationship that they have with Tammy and they, they bring their friends and, you know, things grow and, and therefore that kind of increases your lovers and then the likelihood that you may be able to reach out for some level of in the near future. Yes. So thinking beyond two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, thinking about medium, long term, I think is also a key factor. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think there is an expectation sometimes from executive leadership, but more often than not from the board that, first of all, I don't have to get involved because isn't that what we hired you for, Tammy, the director of development or the chief philanthropy officer, right? That's what we hired you for is to raise the money where the board members actually have those relationships, those circles of influence where we can meet people who are passionate about the arts. And to your point, just like in any relationships, even in our personal lives, it takes time. You have to build trust before someone is willing to make a gift and certainly more trust and deeper relationships before they're willing to make their most generous gift relative to their means. Absolutely. And as with all relationships, sometimes you've got to do a health check. Like, how are we going in this relationship? You know, talking, you know, is it going well? have you, the fundraiser, been listening enough to understand where to take this relationship? I think there's so many complexities and I sometimes I, I do wish that we could have some more honest conversations. And I think not just the board setting unrealistic expectations, but sometimes, and I've seen this again, is that an artistic director will put forward a program and that's their vision but yet the money that they expect to raise from revenue or government subsidy only meets 50%. And they say, well, Matt, as the fundraiser, I need you to go out and raise me $300,000 to realise my project. And this is the first time we've had this conversation. And so really it is about getting our artistic directors and our artistic management understanding fundraising relationships so much better that we wouldn't be having these unrealistic board-level conversations, but we're getting there slowly. And there's hope. I mean, to me, I liken it very much to the university model, whereas the deans of each of the respective schools for most universities now see that they have a very important role to play in collaboration and partnership with the development team, right? That that is an and strategy and 
donors are not spigots, right? We can't just turn the knob and out comes the money. It takes some time to cast a vision, to get buy-in, to build trust. And what's interesting too is we're at this crossroads where we're working to develop more relationships to build trust with our donors and we're meeting up with the great resignation. So anytime there's turnover in a development professional, we have to start the trust building process all over again. Oh, so painful. Oh, that makes me, makes my blood boil, Tammy. Um, you know, we could have a fundraiser in an organization and you know, they're getting to the five-year mark and the relationships are getting strong. And then that fundraiser moves on to another similar role in another arts organization because they're going to be slightly remunerated better. But what it actually does to that organization that they're leaving, we don't have any, we're not thinking big picture enough, is we've got to go back to the start again with these donors. And because we've only ever thought about fundraising as the role of the fundraiser and not have our supporters embedded across everything we do. And it's kind of like, Two steps forward, three steps back. And, of course, there's other environmental factors that play into these things, but losing your key communicator because you've had that sole focus on this way can really, really do big harm to what you, where you wanted to go strategically in the next 10 years. Yeah. And you make the great point that oftentimes they're moving for a slight increase in pay. And mm-hmm. it really, from an organisational perspective, You know, it is tough to pay people what they deserve for the work that they're doing, but to not do so is penny wise and pound foolish, right? Because we know when those relationships with donors get set back, that is setting back contributions. And I think also, you know, management, we need to be having conversations with our staff to understand where they want to go. What is their plan? Of course, people do want to move on to greater challenges, but if we're having these conversations, respectful, then we can plan. There's things that we can do rather than having everything just fall out. Absolutely. All right. So I want to talk about something. I want to talk about something really exciting. So Creative Partnerships Australia recently published your biannual Giving Attitude 2020 report. So congratulations. Thank you. I know that was a huge undertaking that you led, Matt. So tell us about the objective and scope of the study and what were some of the most significant findings? Giving Attitude, we designed Giving Attitude to ask a lot of quantitative data questions around their organisations and fundraising, um, but also the financial estimate. But then also equally getting a lot of sense of what they need, what their challenges are when it comes to seeking private sector support. The report isn't just a one-off. It's something that we plan to do every second year, but we're currently doing it every year so that we can capture the data of the pandemic. And hopefully over time that this report will be able to be so useful by fundraisers and management and also supporters to go in and be able to reflect on My organisation is this, operates like that. So where am I in this playing field? Um, Are we underperforming, overperforming? Do we have the same challenges? We really want the the data and the outcomes to be really, really helpful. 
rather than it just being something that you pick up, you read, and then you may put it into your fundraising strategy for the board. Sure. So um, actionable insights. That's right. And we've had the challenge. Yes, we've released the most recent findings and it's a tricky report. I must be honest, because a lot of Australian organisations, well, 50% report on a calendar year. So we were asking for them to report the year of 2019. So they weren't affected financially by the pandemic, whereas 50% of our sample of arts organisations report on a financial year. And for in Australia, that ends the 31st of June. So they had four months of being affected by the shutdowns of the pandemic. So we kind of had this mishmash of financial data, which is fine, and we're able to sort through that. It took a little bit longer to pull some threads out of there. But what we, we did have was all respondents talking about the sentiments of the effect of COVID-19 on their fundraising and how they think that that will affect them in the next three, five, or 10 years' time. And I guess what, what was the most significant findings? I guess what everybody loves to hear is, you know, what's the total figure of support, financial support for the arts and cultural sector? And in this report, it was $540 million. In our first report, it was actually $608 million. So what we saw between the two surveys was an 11% decline in the value of private sector support. When I first got that figure, my heart sunk. I was like, okay, I understand the people that are doing quite well. So what, what has led to this significant decline? And as we unpacked it, we saw that, you know, business sponsorships in the value of in-kind dropped from $65 million to $25 million. Something that we can attribute to some closures for the pandemic, but also some, some changes in the way in which business in the in-kind space want to work with not-for-profit. And that's something that we'll be able to, as we do the survey over many times, we'll be able to look at this trend in more depth. The biggest area of hit was volunteering and pro bono support. That dropped from, I think it was 180 million down to 124 million. So, and that's because people couldn't volunteer. Right. Simply, people couldn't volunteer at art galleries. They couldn't volunteer at festivals because they were not open or not taking place. So hopefully we'll start to see that pick up in the years moving forward, but it may not because volunteering as a result of the pandemic is changing. People that were volunteering may not come back or the way in which we see these services taking place could change. So let's kind of watch this space. And then the final area was planned giving requests. So we had a drop from $49 million down to 17. And Tammy, as you know, we plan giving, you can have a pipeline of, of, of committed gifts. Um, but if people don't pass away, then they're not realised. So I'm not too concerned in that space, but as long as organisations continue to offer planned giving and get commitments from their supporters, I'd be super happy. So that will fluctuate. But the good news from the report was, cash support was up. So that increased from $351 million to $378 million. So roughly $26 million in a really challenging period. So I've got confidence in that people were making the ask and being successful in that space, both in, you know, business partnerships, but also 
the majority of that, that shift comes from philanthropic donations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the numbers paint a picture. What we also noted from the report is people are spending more money to raise private sector support, which is a good thing. You know, the return on investment, you know, it's creeping up, but what we're seeing is more people are looking to recruit fundraisers to be a part of their organisations, to be a part of their teams. They're also committing to higher salaries. So it goes back to what we were talking about before, yes. you know, that kind of alignment as to you know, valuing the skills and expertise, but also the return on what they're bringing forward, enabling us to do what we need to do. That's encouraging. There's um, a greater spend in marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, the marketing spend is an interesting space because you've got to cut through the noise. You know, what is your brand? What is your message? What is your value? And I'm really interested in looking at the marketing space in regards to fundraising in the future to see if it's actually successful. Are people clicking through and making a donation or is this just a simple reaction to we thinking that everybody's online because of, of the pandemic? I don't know. So I'll be working closely with, you know, our marketing team at CPA um, and also the sector to try and you know, unpick that space, which is quite interesting. Going back to what you were saying before, I was thinking what was surprising for me is around board engagement. So what we found is that only 22% of boards are only discussing fundraising strategies at their board meetings monthly, only 22%. Wow. And so the accountabilities of a board is really fiduciary responsibility and governance, right? Correct. So for that not to be on the table, oh. Hurts my heart. So thinking, and I take that back to I'm thinking I'm the fundraiser. I'm detached from the board and I'm not having a conversation about what I need to do to make us be truly successful. And I also assume that boards should understand what strategy is and what their role in strategy is and how they can contribute to that. You know, it's a difficult piece because fundraising is one, one part of the responsibility. And our role at Creative Partnerships is solely fundraising. We can't, we can't blow up the whole entire board world for arts and culture because we'd be losing our remit. So we kind of need to work with like the Australian Council for the Arts and um, our state-based funding agencies to have these conversations and think about where is the best intervention to boards to have success in fundraising. It's a bit of a challenge. It is. But you know, Matt, you and I have talked in the past Um, about the pandemic being a reset time, you know, not going back to business as usual, not going back to normal, so-called normal, but rather a fresh opportunity to do things differently, to kind of reimagine with more intention, rebuilding deeper relationships, telling our stories more powerfully, right? The marketing pieces, and, and also maybe rethinking board engagement. That's what's, I think, the exciting opportunity in front of us. We actually could recreate what it means to be like in the philanthropic sector, whether you're a board or a staff member or, you know, a volunteer. Um, and I know that that's a lot of what our masterclass is going to talk about, the art of donor influence, what it's really all about. But boards do indeed play such a key role in that. They do. And maybe that's the awareness piece that CPA needs to be focusing more on is talking to those board directors 
one by one through maybe through our state managers or through campaigns and so forth about do they understand their role in fundraising? 25% of the revenue of the organisation, what role do you play here? What can we do to educate you better so that you feel more confident that you can ask the right, right questions, that you know that you're going to get the truthful answers? I guess I'm really fortunate in the roles that I've had in fundraising, I've had boards where fundraising is you know, number four on the agenda. It's, it's discussed at every single board meeting. And the respect from the board to how important this role is, because it brings in so much support enabling us to do what we do, it's a very big, big conversation at board meetings. And, and it's a really respectful conversation between fundraising, management and the board. So how do we get that, that kind of respectful way of working in a smaller context, in the small to medium sector? It's more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. But, hey, there's some organisations that are in the small to medium space that are kicking goals in this area. They're, they're educating their boards about fundraising. They're getting them on board talking about what we're going to do today or next year in regards to fundraising and what resources they need to be able to do what they do. Like That's a critical point, talking about the resources that they need to be able to undertake a fundraising campaign, not just about coffees and, you know, prospectus. Um, you know, there's things that need to be, you know, skills development, up training. Um, there's so many things that you've got to invest. If you want to make money, you've got to invest. And we, we do see that in some of the small and medium sector. And I guess the skills thing, that's really popular because, hey, the arts and cultural sector are coming out to see you in full force in a couple of weeks' time in Australia. I think it really boils down to how do we build a culture of philanthropy inside our organizations? And so inside a culture of philanthropy, we know from the board and across the entire ranks of the staff, through our volunteer ranks, people understand that they have a role to play in philanthropy. It may not be asking for money, but it could be opening doors or making introductions or sharing stories. I mean, there are so many jobs to be done that everyone can find a place to contribute. And collectively, you know, we build this culture of philanthropy that really becomes a magnet for supporters. People are so excited and so passionate at every level that the community is saying, I want to be involved in that, right? Like, give me, I'd like to have what they're having. So I think that's part of a culture of philanthropy. And another attribute of a culture of philanthropy is when we look at fundraising and marketing, not as an expense, but as an investment. You're nodding your head like, amen, I'm- amen. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I just think that those are two of the keys to us creating that, that reset. And gosh, imagine our arts and cultural communities when we can do that. And, and I think Joining the forces of fundraising and marketing, marketing experts understand people, people's personas, their drivers. And as fundraisers, yes, we've got a level of understanding. We need to work together and work respectfully to think about how does this work into our plan and what can we learn from each other? So therefore, 
we're putting forward the best campaigns that we possibly can. But our messaging is so on point and so compelling. And whilst the marketing team and the fundraising, the fundraisers are building on that relationship and talking about the wins that they're having as well. So we're not siloed anymore. I think we're, I've seen that change happen in an organisation. And day one, it was a bit prickling. But 300 days later, full of comfort, understanding, respect. And, you know, there was no need for a marketing and fundraising meeting because the conversations were taking place daily. And when it does happen, it's so amazing. Yeah. And the benefits, incredible. Yeah. Mm. Good stuff. Well, I want to begin to wrap up today's episode and I want to know and give you an opportunity to share what's next for you, Matt. Any exciting projects or initiatives that our listeners can look forward to? Great question. We're, we're coming into what we call our new financial year. Um, so we're working a lot on our personal strategy here at CPA, really focusing on what we can be doing better for the sector, not just artists and arts organisations, but also, you know, the philanthropic community and, and the business support community. Um, so that's going to be really interesting for us. You know, we've got Plus One, our match funding program that launches in July for Australian arts organisations where they can apply to have matching funds up to $50,000 to entice new supporters to their organisation. So it's not about us just matching the money that you raised last year from your supporters. It's about new engagement and supporting strategies that you've been working on and giving you, you know, a bit of a carrot to get them across. Uh-huh. Um, That's exciting. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of few, there's a few projects that I'm kind of, mulling over at the moment, um, you know, testing them. So I think it's a bit of watch this space. Some exi- really exciting ideas. They're all in that. How do we tune them properly? Mm-hmm. Very good. The one thing that we do pride ourselves here at CPA is everything has to be top shelf. So we don't put things out to market that we're, we think that are half-baked. You know, it's our responsibility to make sure that they're, yeah, they're top shelf. So but it's in the back room at the moment, which is good. It's excellent. And that's been my experience. Like everything is done with excellence. So congratulations. I think that's definitely a, you know, a cultural value that you have as an organization. So our listeners know at the end of each guest conversation that I like to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide uh, even more value to our listeners. So I have about uh, just a handful of questions. Are you ready, Matt? Yes, I am. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Okay. Um, focus on the donor's needs and not yours. That ability to listen. Um, you know, what's driving them to support you and what you're doing. Love it. What book do you recommend to our audience and Why? I'll be completely honest. I don't read a lot of books anymore. I'm a podcaster. I love to put in my pods and go for a walk and listen. But I did over Christmas was sent this book called Your Amazing Brand Story by an Australian called Tim Wood. Um, And this is about, it's a book about storytelling and how stories are about people. It's a really easy read and it's educational at the end of each chapter. It asks you questions about how you can relate that back to your story. Quite an excellent book. What are the top three characteristics needed to be a successful fundraiser? Be able to listen, be respectful, be strategic. Very good. What's your favorite fundraising tool 
or app? This is a no-brainer for me, and that is the Australian Cultural Fund. So the Australian Cultural Fund is something that we manage at Creative Partnerships Australia, and this enables independent artists or small groups that can't get tax deductibility status in Australia. It enables them to fundraise on our platform and donors can make a donation to Creative Partnerships Australia and get their tax receipt. And then we pass on 100% of those funds onto the artists themselves so that they can create work. I love it. The hotbed of creativity, of ideas, across every single art form, everywhere. It's just, yeah. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And I have spent time on your website. I mean, you showcase uh, many of the recipients, the artists, in such a beautiful and empowering way. What's your favorite fundraising conference and why? Remember when we would meet oh, in person good. way back in the day? <laughs> um, oh, good, good question. I'd probably say in Australia it would be the big four fundraising conference. So it has four different streams. And it means that kind of where you're at at the moment in your organisation, you can sit in a particular pathway and get immersed in that. But with any conference, why do I love them? It's because then I can catch up with colleagues and meet new people. And that's kind of where in my role, I kind of call it shopping. It's like where I'm out there going, oh, my God, this person's doing the most amazing stuff and they can really talk about it. It's about product, not about them. Great, I want to meet them. I want to see if we can work together. I want to see what we can do. Yeah, love it. Knowing what you know now about fundraising and the nonprofit sector, what advice would you give your younger self who's just starting out in the profession? Now, this is traumatic, actually. Um, probably understand the situation better before you open the door. Um, you know, one of my first encounters with a supporter of an organization that I worked with I thought I was just going to have a conversation about how we could get them to re-engage with the organisation. As soon as I sat down at the table opposite this person, they just went to town on me saying, why, why are you here, Matthew? Why is not the head of fundraising here? Oh. I've given this company support over numerous years. Nobody talks to me. So why are you here today? And I had to, I had known that information. Firstly, I wouldn't have walked through the door. But luckily enough, I think I was able to really able to sympathize with the donor and really apologetic and be able to share how I was thinking and feeling in this situation and, and what we could do when I go back to the company because personally I was livid that I was in this situation. So it did mean that we, but between me and that donor, we've had a respectful long-term relationship but yes, their relationship with the company that I was fundraising for at that time, that kind of support ceased. So respect on one level, no respect on the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and if you've been a fundraiser for any length of time, we, we all have our version of that story. You know, that happens all too often. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a lot to learn there about information sharing, right? Expectation setting. Oh, I, I feel for you. I, that one was painful. Um, so Matt, last question. Fast forward to the end of your career. Looking back, what do you hope to have accomplished? I'm not going to say what I hope to accomplish. What I'd like to see happening is that the arts and cultural sector in Australia 
we, we hit that 50 or 60% of private sector support as uh, our revenue stream and that we've increased donors and business support to the arts. So we're building on that research that you were talking about really early on in our conversation and seeing that kind of embedded into the way in which people think and feel when they want to support something. So I'd just like to be able to sit back and just go, isn't this amazing? Yeah. Because I'm not the fundraiser, Tammy. I'm, I'm not the fundraiser at the moment. So um, I can do the best that or we can do the best here at Creative Partnerships to give as much support as we can to organisations. But it's up to the individuals themselves to make the investment mm-hmm. and spend the time. So fingers crossed they do. Yeah, but you are. You are equipping and empowering fundraisers all across the arts and cultural sector to do better fundraising. So I think that makes you, uh, I think you're still a fundraiser indirectly. (laughs) And I just think about your story and how you started off in the arts as a dancer and how it's come full circle. While you may not be on a stage, you're empowering and making certain that other artists, other dancers and singers and performers and artists are seen and heard and appreciated and that we all get to enjoy the product of their labor. So thank you. Thank you for this conversation today. As always, you're insightful and a gift to the arts and cultural community. And I hope that our listeners, both the listeners that we have in Australia who work in the arts and cultural sector have found this helpful, but I also believe that fundraisers everywhere can benefit from this conversation about reset, this conversation about really looking at our data and setting strategy, data-informed strategies. How do we create a culture of philanthropy? How do we engage and attract and retain the best talent? Like these are the challenges and the opportunities that are ahead of us, and I believe we'll all rise to the occasion. And certainly, Creative Partnerships Australia is kind of the wind beneath the wings of so many organizations all across Australia. So we appreciate you. And thank you. Thanks, Matt, for joining the Intentional Fundraiser podcast today. Thank you, Tammy. I think it's always a pleasure having a conversation with you. I feel that we could go on for hours and hours and hours um, because there are so much, so many threads out there. But this has been an absolute pleasure. And um, again, as I said, I think it's what, three weeks, four weeks, and you'll be here in Melbourne. Cannot wait. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Yes. So listeners, if you find yourself wanting to learn more about Matt, Creative Partnerships Australia, or our masterclass national tour on the art of donor influence, check out the links below in our show notes. That's a wrap for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast with me, Tammy Zonker. Until next time, keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. We're back for a final word about Tammy Zonker's training style and what you can expect when you join as a growth member in her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's growth member Jenna Sapluski from the Coalition for Children, Youth, and Families in Milwaukee. Tammy is so encouraging. She's very empowering. She really wants you to succeed in your role. And that really comes through with everything that she does, from the monthly coaching calls to the monthly webinars. 
the guidance I've received from Tammy and other members of the Fundraising Transformers group has always been so constructive, so beneficial, and you can tell everyone in the group wants everybody else to succeed because we all know what a challenging job it can be to fundraise for our our wonderful causes and our organizations. You may be asking yourself, can a growth membership really help me improve my fundraising results? Is it worth my time? Laurel Grow from Phoenix Family in Kansas City shared that her organization increased charitable dollars raised by 132% since joining as a growth member. Becky Shambliss from Awake in Anchorage, Alaska shared that her organization increased donor retention from 13% to 69% in about a year using what they learned from Tammy's training. And growth member Amanda Johnson from Multiplying Good in Indianapolis shared that her organization exceeded their annual fundraising goal by 104% and grew overall giving by 13% in one year by applying lessons learned from Tammy as a member of her Fundraising Transformers community. Here's member Stevie Shoemate again sharing how she and you can grow your fundraising skills as a growth member of Tammy's Fundraising Transformers community. This is the first fundraising role that I have ever been in before. Um, so at 30 years old, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, well, how do I rocket launch my fundraising expertise? You learn from Tammy's Zonker. That's what you do. Become a member of the Fundraising Transformers community. To join our live monthly training and Ask Me Anything sessions and get access to our growing library of on-demand training videos and tools and share lessons learned with other fundraising pros like you in our private and safe online community, visit fundraisingtransform.com growth, click join, and get started today. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations create a results driven donor centric development plan strengthen donor relationships improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.